Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Lynn Tillman about her recent book, Mother Care. In one of the few examples of Lynn writing about her own life, Mother Care documents the period in which her mother developed and then sadly passed from a rare health condition. Lynn Tillman is a novelist, short story writer, cultural critic and the author of various books, including Haunted Houses, Weird Fucks, American Genius, and Men and Apparitions. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and an Andy Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writing Fellowship. She is also a professor and writer-in-residence at the Department of English at the University of Albany and teaches the School of Visual Arts Art Criticism and Writing MFA program in New York. In this conversation, Lynn discusses her experience of becoming a caregiver and the various complexities and frustrations of navigating the American healthcare system. We discuss the role literature can play in making sense of illness and why she feels writing and psychotherapy are very distinctly different. Before we get into this episode, just another reminder that there are still tickets available for the night of readings and discussion taking place at the Horse Hospital in London on May 25th. We'll be lucky enough to hear readings from Amber Hussein, Matt Colhoun and Misha Fraser-Carroll on the topics of illness as a political, social and cultural object. It's going to be a great evening, so if you're able to make it to London, please do join us. The cost of admission is pay what you can afford, but please do get a ticket ahead of time so it's easier to manage numbers. With all that said, on to the episode. So for listeners who haven't read your book, Mother Care, could you just introduce the period of your life that the book documents? It documents the years between 1995 and 2006. And those years were taken up, much of it, not not all of it, but I'm not writing about anything other than it, um, in Mother Care. When my mother became ill with a condition called normal pressure hydrocephalus, which in 1995 was not easily diagnosed. And we were very fortunate that we didn't make a conclusion based on the first neurologist who looked at her MRI and said, um, well, this is probably Alzheimer's, you know, and, um, my sisters and I recognized that my mother's symptomology was not that of a person with Alzheimer's. It was kind of from one day to the next, she changed and she didn't change back. It wasn't, you know, with, uh, I think with Alzheimer's at the beginning, it's much more episodic. 
and this was not episodic. Those 11 years were very tense with, with being a caretaker, which I knew nothing about. And I suppose that's what you're interested in. Yeah, <laughs> in part. yeah, yeah. Caretaking. Yeah, I know. And when did you write the book as well? I wasn't quite sure. And I know some of your other books have been published and then republished. When, oh, when yes. was this one? Oh, yes. this, this is recent. This I, I, I started it, Sam, about a year after my mother died in 2000. She died 2006. I, I had finished uh, American Genius, a comedy had come out uh, and that novel and I was thinking, oh, no, what, 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 what will I write? And I thought, oh, I'll write an essay about the medical care my mother received. And I started to write it. And after about 14 pages over a day or two, because it came quite easily, I thought, what am I doing? Am I crazy? Who wants to live in this period again? I've just gotten through it. So I put it aside. And then after I finished my most recent novel, Men in Apparitions, which did come out in the UK, I think 2020, in, during COVID, um, I, I thought, okay, I could turn to this. And then COVID hit. And uh, David and I were up in Hudson, you know, where we have a little house staying away from the city. And it was kind of perfect to do it then. I, I had time, I had isolation, you know. Yeah. And and what was it about um, that specific period in your life that you felt compelled to write about as opposed to maybe other um, periods of your life or periods of loss or family? Um, I didn't, it, it was really, um, I had learned... Uh, something that I never expected to learn. I think none of us really are prepared for what happens to could be parents or best friends or siblings when they get very ill and become dependent. And I'd never had a child and never wanted one. So I didn't have that responsibility ever, which is a different responsibility because the child is not, fortunately not, born and then dies after 11 years or something. But um, it wasn't like that, ultimately. Uh, And I thought it was important to talk about what I'd learned, what I, you know, I'm not really, it wasn't that I was concerned with my experience, but how my experience might help somebody else it was also a way to kind of offload whatever information I had that could be helpful. And uh, I I have a pretty good memory and I remembered a lot and I had some calendars to help me. And, uh, but I, I thought, you know, when you're hit with a, an illness like that, and you know nothing about it. And then you haven't been involved in the hospital situation or system or, you know, I think every country has a different one. And fortunately, my mother had Medicare, which worked very well for her. But uh, but that didn't pay for everything. We, 
my sisters and I had to take care of daily living, rent, and all of that food. So it was expensive. It was, uh, well, it opened, it opened a door to a whole institution that I was not uh, dealing with before. I thought I had something that I could tell people that might be helpful, or in some ways I'm learning consoling. Now that the book, the book has been out here since August, last August, 2022. And I guess it's just coming out now in the UK. Yeah, I think it might be next month or last month that came out. Yeah. And what I have discovered from people who've written me, people I don't know, uh, or uh, a couple of times I've done a, a public thing at the university where I teach. And, uh, Many people have this experience and many yeah. people don't like their mothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. But what, um, but what I didn't know was that it was really verboten, taboo to mm, say that. Yeah. It, I, yeah. As we were talking a little bit before I pressed record, I was saying about how a lot of the time on this podcast, I'm speaking to people writing in, you know the genre of theory or history or, or, or sort of um, non-fiction work um, which tends to have a more direct or obvious intentionality to what the book is kind of hoping to achieve and I think to not at all make a value judgment on either uh, autobiographical or um, more kind of literary writing doesn't have such a straightforward intention. Um, you touched on a little bit there but do, did the intention of did your intention for what the book was going to do or what you wanted to do change at all in the process of writing it? No, um, the intention was always to uh, talk about this situation of a very ill person that you're taking care of, and hospitalization and confusion with doctors and uh, being a patient advocate. I had never read anything, not that I was searching the whole literature that told me anything about this. And I call it an autobiographical essay. It's not a memoir. It's really about my life only in relationship to my mother's uh, illness over 11 years. And I, that's very different. And how it affected me, but the me is not so personal. I, I don't know if I can, I, I don't write about myself uh, in my fiction. I use whatever I can. And I, I felt this was not a personal story, although it is personal to me, but it was a, I can't call it a universal story, but it universal in that People have mothers and fathers, and if they're orphans, they may be in an institution or foster parents or somebody usually, hopefully, is, is helping you grow up, you know, giving you a home. So that seemed to me more or less universal. So I did have a strong intention, and I usually have 
that um, when I write fiction also. I don't think it's, Sam, I, I don't make so much distinction between theory and fiction, frankly. <laughs> no, it's probably, probably, probably makes sense, actually. Um, so as you're talking about there in the book, you're, you you talk a lot about the experience you and your sisters had in, I guess, what we think of as the kind of diagnostic phase of your mother's condition. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the challenges you faced in that um, in that in that phase and, and what your experiences of the doctors and neurologists and that such were like? As I said, so I expected when an MRI was read that it would give you an answer. Mm. And there would just be one answer. Mm. And then I found out that the MRI, the reading of it was as much an art as a science. Four different doctors looked at it. And there were three different conclusions. It was an aging brain. Uh, she had Alzheimer's. Uh, it was some other kind of brain. The um, spaces between were too big or they were all right or in the brain. And it was at that, at that moment you realize, well, of course, I always knew the brain is very complicated, but you realize again how, how science is trying to comprehend but the brain is really extraordinarily mysterious to everybody. And there's, you know, there's, there are pathways being made. I mean, I recently read that there's better medication for multiple sclerosis. And, you know, there's progress in, in some way, but the brain remains very mysterious. So we, after about a year, we got a solid diagnosis from I call him Dr. A in the book. And um, he said, uh, I'm going to make a subtle diagnosis. I think it's normal pressure hydrocephalus. Your mother has two of the three traits. The one that she didn't have is the gait. There's a particular gait, apparently, way that somebody walks if they have NPH. And she did not, but she had memory loss and incontinence. And those were signs. He was the only one who read that in her, who mm. saw that. Mm. Now, without a good diagnosis, you are sunk. Um, I mean, that's just, that is it. You know, that's the bottom line. You don't have a diagnosis that's right. And anything that happens after that is wrong. Mm. Right? It's just, mm. and the ability to diagnose is obviously takes a great deal of information and knowledge, but it also takes a kind of intuitiveness, uh, an ability to go beyond what would be the most usual response. The ability to make, that's why Dr. A said, this is a subtle diagnosis. He's not saying this is the strongest, you know, this is heavy, this is total, subtle. And but then we had the misfortune of taking my mother to a neurologist who was a very arrogant, he had been, or he was the head of a big hospital in the city, 
and he'd been recommended by Dr. A. But he was no longer a good doctor. Uh, I don't know what happened to him. People have talked to me about him. He's now dead. He would not believe that it was really normal pressure hydrocephalus. And he kept telling us that it was just an aging brain. And by that time, my mother, it's a little confusing, but he, he would give her uh, spinal taps in his office about once a month and remove some of that cerebral spinal cerebral fluid. And she would get more clear. Then, then she had a, a shunt it put in place, but it was put in place by a neurosurgeon. And that's when you learn that surgeons are considered the, you know, playboys of the Western world. <laughs> <laughs> that they're considered, they come in, they do their job, they walk away, yeah. finish. Well, could you, this, could you quickly explain what a shunt is, just for people that might not know? So a shunt is a kind of gizmo <laughs> they put. Yeah. Uh, they make a opening in the skull and it drains fluid through a tube that goes under the skin, under the neck, into the stomach. It disgorges, let's say, there. Problem is um, the, I mean, and I tell the story of the development, the, yeah. the discovery of the shunt in, in mother care, but the problem is it's like plumbing. Any tube could get stuffed up. And that happened six times to my mother. So they do what they call a procedure. They don't change the gizmo that's there. They I usually give a new tube. The first operation to implant the shunt, the tube was too long. And so for the first and only time, the because the tube bent in the, in the stomach, uh, the fluid went back up, or just stopped, and she had a grand mal seizure. Uh, and we had hired, well, this brings in people who you hire to take care of your mother. You can't be there all the time. We'd hired what we thought was somebody who was schooled in her condition and would recognize a grand mal seizure, and she didn't. And I went racing over, I guess the woman called, I don't even remember her name. She wasn't with my mother very long. And my mother was stitching in the air and her legs were up. She was in this very strange position, but she was unconscious, but she was just doing this automatic brain triggered activity. And so that was the neurosurgeon's fault. Of course, what can you do? So it was fixed, but more damage had been done to her brain. Uh, that pressure on the brain because of the uh, too much fluid. When the fluid is eliminated, the brain has a chance to recover. The brain develops new cells. They used to think 
It didn't, but it does, and it knew pathways, which is kind of amazing. But there was more damage done. And after that grand mal seizure and the, the next and the procedure to replace the tube and so my mother was really pretty out of it for quite a long time. I'm trying to remember. I think there was one time right after this procedure where she had to have another one because there was blood in the shot in the in the tube. And then for a while it it worked fine. Yeah. I'm curious as to how those experiences changed how you felt about expertise and especially medical expertise, because I suppose in the dynamic of care, especially the kind of care we receive in in the clinic and the hospital, that there's a sort of assumed um, expertise divide. Um, But of course, it's not quite as simple as that. And your experience speaks to the fact that very often the, the privileging of one interpretation over another is um, leads to um, harm. Um, but then, of course, we're also still attached to the need for experts in some aspects. So it's quite a complicated dynamic. And I, and I was wondering how you felt about that dynamic, having, having had and written about this experience. Well, I still have some trust in doctors, <clears throat> but... I have more trust in doctors still than my, let's say, my partner, my husband, <laughs> would ever have. But um, as I said, when I discovered that the MRI could be read different ways, that was a great shock to me. Uh, and like any other text, it was interpreted. And I think when I learned that, that was the first kind of wake up, you know. And then I was talking to my eye doctor, I was having my yearly checkup uh, and talking to him about surgery. He said, well, there's an art to surgery. It's not just a craft, it's not just... And then I began to think of it very, very differently. I also think that taking care of people uh, and being responsible for their health in a way, if you're going to do an operation or something, creates an unusual kind of figure, a person who either can, well, not just either, can become arrogant, can become guilt-ridden, can become terrified, can become cruel, can become compassionate, these people are human beings and they're not gods. And I think, I think fortunately my sisters and I, and I don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but I think we're educated. We speak English pretty well. We understand mostly what's told to us and we can ask questions. And I think the system of med- medicine here privileges those people who can actually discuss things with their doctors and get their doctors to do more. I mean, I know there are situations in the national health. I have a friend who died. I don't think she should have died in England who was complaining of stomach trouble for years and there were no- nothing, nothing happened. And, 
anyway, um, it should have been diagnosed much earlier. So people make mistakes everywhere. I also think that if you have a doctor for a long time and you develop a good relationship with him or her, they don't want to think of you as terribly ill. <laughs> you know, they want to think, oh, no, this it can't be pancreatic cancer, you know. Uh, it's probably just, you know, reflux or something like that. Uh, and that's a very human trait. But then sometimes I had a wonderful doctor who said, we are going, I'm, you know, I was crying in the office because it was a, a, a really unpleasant situation. And he said, don't worry, I'm going to cure you. We are going to cure you as long as it takes. And he did after about three years, but it took a while, but he was in it, you know. Um, and I felt confident that he wasn't, you know, lying to me. He was very intent. So it's the person who's caring for you. It's the workload they have. Um, it's their sensitivity, their ability to diagnose. And this neurologist who, um, he didn't believe she had normal pressure hydrocephalus for one thing. And after the shunt, at a certain point, whether it was the third procedure or something, he said the shunt was working. We said we didn't think it was, she's regressing. No, the shunt is working, you're just fooling yourself. She's old and blah, blah, blah. Well, I think it was my New York sister who got in touch with another neurosurgeon. And we took my mother to him and we said, we think her shunt isn't working. And he said, well, have you had the shuntogram? Sounds ridiculous. Has she had the shuntogram? And uh, what's the shuntogram? Well, it's, it's, a, it's very simple. They can tell whether the shunt is working. So these months have gone by. Yeah. The next morning, my mother has, I take my mother to the hospital for that test. And indeed, the shunt is not working. And she has to get a procedure. I think it's then she has the procedure. And then like two days later, they have to do another one because there was blood in the tube. You know, she's a very old woman by now, but she's strong as an ox. She was always strong. So one of the reasons she lived till 98, you know. Well, one of the things you describe in the book is your own process of reading as a kind of parallel process as have uh, you been an advocate for your mother could you talk a little bit about what you read and, and what you gained from what you read and and you know as a writer what you made of I guess what we might call kind of popular medical writing as as a genre well I don't know how pop medical it was because I was reading a doctor's um uh what is his name again he writes for the for the New Yorker, and he writes books also. I'm forgetting his is name it, uh, now. Siddhartha Mukherjee, or no, no, not no. Mukherjee, no, because he was can he was wrote about cancer. Um, it'll come back to me, um, and you can add it later, I guess. <laughs> uh, he um, he wrote about gerontology, 
uh, in the New Yorker. It was a long essay about what it is and the treatment of aging people and how the medical profession, its desire is to cure. But he said that they didn't know how to deal with someone in decline. And that to me was incredibly important. And in fact, it came into the, the end of life situation because my mother wasn't dying all the time. I mean, one of the review problems that I have was when it's reviewed, her mother was dying for 11 years. She wasn't dying for 11 years. She was alive with a bad condition from you know most of those 11 years. And in the last year, I think she was heading toward death. Um, and what, what happened was toward the very end, my mother had pneumonia and her internist was giving her antibiotics for it. She was at home. I was teaching up in Albany, where I teach in the spring. And one of my sisters kind of got very upset. She had friends over, they said, you should take your mother to emergency. And they did. And the doctors, these young interns, were trying to cure my mother of pneumonia. And when I got there, I came back from uh, Albany, when she was in the, the hospital, or I got back there, went, and I remember very vividly this one doctor trying, my mother had very thin veins, and as she they got older, they were they were very difficult to get into. And this this young intern was trying to get a needle into her in her neck, the jugular. And my mother was squirming and obviously in distress. And I went over to him at her bedside. I said, what are you trying to do? Well, we want to cure her pneumonia. I said, but you're causing her pain. And I said, you know, obviously my mother is very ill and um, we don't want her to have pain. So I stopped him basically from doing that. One of my sisters, the Carolina sister was researching the hospital and some other things. She's very good at research. And she discovered that in that hospital where my mother went for an emergency situation, there was the first hospice care unit in America. It just happened to be there. We were damn lucky because then we went to that hospice unit, which was, I think, on the eighth floor. No one had thought to tell us about it. Your mother is 98, you know, here's this unit that, and fortunately we met this wonderful geriatric psychiatrist. Now I didn't know what the hell geriatric psychiatry was, right? And I should have, but it's, it's not about the talking cure, you know, much as I do that, my, it wasn't about that. It was dealing with an elderly person there their body and their mind as they head toward death. And she moved, what's that phrase, heaven and earth, and got my mother hospice care and got her home on Monday. This was, this, I was in the hospital, it was a Saturday or a Friday, just got her out of there. And then we, she 
we got her home on a Monday and I believe she died the next next Saturday. Uh, but with hospice care and they gave us a little booklet on dying. Without that, I mean, no one, I fault the medical establishment. No one had said, look, when your mother gets very ill, when she's going to be done, these are signs you should look for. This is what you could do. You should get hospice care involved. Here's a number. And if, if this hadn't just by dumb luck come into our purview and this wonderful psych, psych, geriatric psychiatrist, and she even, she was going away that weekend on a train and she even called us from the train to find out. I mean, we didn't know her. She was just, so that was her, that was her as an individual. One of the things I found really interesting in the book was your decision to name the living care workers that, that cared for your mother, but then to, as you've they're been not, doing they're it. Not their, they're not their names. Those oh. are made up names. Well, what I, I, what, what I was interested by is the contrast between them and then the doctors who only get a single yeah. letter. And I, and I just wanted to yeah. ask you about uh, why you made that decision and, and, and what, what, what maybe you think it says about the distinction between those two different relationships or those two different types of care work? Or... Well, there were many more doctors and they would come into it more frequently. Mm. I didn't think remembering all those names was going to be helpful. And some of the caregivers whom we paid, I don't name, but I just describe. But the one who was with her longest for 10 years, I do give a name because she was and was not part of the family, but she was always involved for those 10 years. And of course, that is not her name. And I, there are other facts that I don't that I change a little, so we don't know where she's from, really, and so on. But uh, I, I, I think it was just about creating differences between the jobs, in a way. Mm. How, how do you see the differences? Because there's, of course, a huge amount of overlap. But then, I suppose in in the in the time spent with your mother and the different types of care providers and the time and the kind of role they play, as you say, both in and outside of the family, they're quite kind of profoundly different. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the different? Well, for types? one thing, the the medical doctors are not in the home. That that distinction, I mean, we were not from a family that was aristocratic or upper class and would have servants would have people in the home all the time. You know, I, I think I may have had a nanny when I was an infant for a little while, but no one stayed overnight. No one, that, that difference of a person living in a family with your mother or with your father or with whomever is entirely different. It is something that while you could say, oh, doctors and caregivers both, you know, treat your mother, take care of you, it's entirely different. And I think that relationship of a person living in your home and you're thinking that it is, you know, it's like, I remember 
the first job I had where I was going to work with people in a proof room turned out I worked with them for years on and off. I thought I could keep my neutrality <laughs> with them. But sometimes we'd spend 11, 12 hours together when the magazine was closing. And no matter how much I didn't want to interact with these people, they were in my life five days, you know, three days, one week, two days the next when the magazine was closing. And I make that comparison because often I thought I see these people more than I do any of my friends, mm. you know. And yet I didn't want to think of them as friends. And so this is what I mean. And this is the analogy I'm making. You hire somebody, you think they're an employee. They come and live in your house. And that notion that the employee remains in a kind of category of her own is, is broken down, or at least it was broken down. I mean, Frances had her own room, but the wall between family and employee is perme permeable, you know, and living in that family confuses things. It's not, it's the least clear cut relationship I, I think I've ever experienced. Do you understand? I mean, do you, do you take the difference? Yeah, no, do I do. I think I've maybe, I'm trying to think if there's any a, a parallel in my life and I've, I've worked for people where they've been, I've probably maybe been on the other side of it where you work with people who you're very close with. And yeah, I, I see, I mean, I, it comes through in the book. I, I you know, I, I get the point that you're making definitely through the book as well. I was, I'm thinking as well about another, another kind of relationship, another kind of care that you only mentioned it briefly in the book and, and you've mentioned it briefly in the recorded part of this conversation and briefly before we started recording. Um, and that's, uh the the psychoanalytic or psychotherapeutic relationship um and i suppose there's a few questions there i mean maybe the place to start would be how do, how do you how do you see that as distinct or, or comparable to the um the two other kinds of care work that we've outlined there i mean I, i'm interested in what you're saying earlier about the way in which positions of care can create a kind of figure um and of course, that's something that an analyst or a therapist has to kind of constantly be aware of. Um, and transference, if they're aware of the, they have to be aware of transference. If they're not, you know, you're doomed as a patient. <laughs> yeah. But then I, I'm also interested in how you see the relationship between therapy and writing, because, you know, not to be too on the nose about it, but this is an entire book about your relationship with your mother, which is one of the kind of cliched, uh, but it's no. not therapy. I mean, I don't think of writing as therapy in any way. I know some writers do, and mm. I, um, it's a, a psychoanalysis and psycho being a, a, an analysand is just an entirely different relationship um, from one to, to writing. Obviously, for me, Freud and psychoanalytic theory has has had a tremendous impact on the way that I think. Um, and I don't psychoanalyze my characters. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't think that writing is a form of analysis. Analysis, in fact, frees me from thinking about analysis <laughs> when I'm writing. <laughs> Could you talk a bit about a bit more what you meant by that 
Well, I mean that the consciousness of what we purport to have, a self, for me disappears when I'm writing. I'm not writing myself. I'm not, even in mother care, which is, I consider non-fiction, although I think everything is fiction theory also, by the way, it's something made. Um, when I use myself, whether in fiction or non-fiction, this is not the Lynn Tillman who wakes up in the morning and makes herself a cup of tea. And then, you know, thinks, you know, how can I go on with my life or something? I'm not, she's not what I'm writing. I may use incidents, you know, it's my material, like making any art, you use material. That's some material, lots of other things in my material also. When I wrote Men and Apparitions, you know, photography and ethnography, those were my material to use also. So I take myself as material. I look at this character and she went through 11 years of this. But do I think that's me? No. Me is very different. Yeah. I was reading around, so I, I can't remember if it was an interview, or, uh, it might have been in the New York Times, but I was interested by something you said where you, you felt, um, the quote something like, you felt a writer's obligation to discuss the complexities of caregiving as honestly as you could, but without protecting yourself. Um, yes. And, and not to kind of paraphrase your own, back to you but I, could I ask you what you meant by not feeling the need to protect yourself and and how you feel that was important to writing about this period well I hadn't seen and you may know of, of this I hadn't seen uh, an account of caregivers living in people's homes and the the kind of causality of race and class uh, and what kind of situations it produced, and how you're really unprepared. As I said, you know, you imagine you can maintain a neutral relationship. She's an employee, you're the employer, but it all breaks down. It, 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 it at least it it did, and in 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 our case, and for me, and I could have avoided certain things in my writing. But I knew pretty, pretty quickly I had to deal with this. The most dishonest thing I would do would be ignore the fact that we did hire an undocumented worker, that we didn't pay her the best wages in the world, um, that uh, we were caught in a system of inequity and were also privileged enough to use it. Uh, and. I felt that that was very important. And I think at one point I write about, I could have, if I had wanted to sacrifice my life, moved in with my mother so that we wouldn't have had a full-time carer and involved ourselves in that system. I didn't do that. None of us did that. So, you know, the word complicit is used a lot, and I really can't stand it anymore because uh, we are in a system. Obviously, everyone is, you know, more or less complicit unless you're a saint. And I wasn't a saint. I wanted to continue my life. I had to teach. I wanted to continue writing, which I did. 
and I used I used something that was inequitable. Um, that's that's what I meant, and um, and also the honesty about not loving my mother and not pretending that uh, I felt guilty. I didn't feel guilty. Uh, it's it's interesting. I don't know if in the UK there will be this response, but in the United States, some of the reviewers, while appreciating the book, also criticized me as being a kind of bad daughter or saying, well, she must have loved her mother, you know. But I think there's a difference between conscience, obligation, and love. And I think when I was saying to you uh, that with the publication here, many people have come up to me or written to me, people I don't know, about how it was important for them to see these words, I didn't love my mother, in a book. They thought they would never see it. And that they felt they didn't love their mother and they felt horrible about it and guilty about it. Well, it's not a wonderful feeling. You know, not to be able to love your mother or not to think your mother is capable of love. And I I think that was true about my mother. And it didn't make for a happy household or a happy family um, for me. But it was the truth as I felt it. And people have said to me, Lynn, you know, it was so brave of you to do this. I couldn't imagine writing this book and and not talking about that. And one of the things, Sam, that's kind of interesting was, you know, it's about 40 pages in when I realized I had to bring my, myself in more because there was a kind of dialogical relationship going on between my mother and me and the institutions. And I couldn't ignore who was narrating this, who was telling the story. It, it wasn't some neutral character, like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an entirely third person book. It was coming from a point of view. And I say that this is my point of view, not my sister's, let's say. Has the, has the process of writing the book changed? Um, I don't necessarily mean your specific relationship to your family, but has it changed how you think about, you know, quote unquote family as a, as a more abstract concept or, or a kind of historical object? Has, has it changed any of those questions for you? I've always had a problem with family. <laughs> I mean, not always since I was, you know, a little girl, but I think the, uh, the family as the core of our societies is a great burden uh, because we are taught that we must love each other. and. Um, I don't think the family began as that. It was much more about function and instrumentalizing a, a re- instrumental relationship. And it's kind of the same problem with romantic love. But the family has a, t- has a stranglehold. In other words, you're meant to love people who are terrible to you. I mean, not always. There's some families where that doesn't happen. So it's a, there's a kind of S&M element built into the family. 
that I think is truly problematic. My therapist said to me recently, would you be friends with these people in your family? Would you choose them as a friend? And I said, no. And I think that reality uh, is often whitewashed or papered over or by the idea that we should love. We should, no matter how much hurt has been done, how much damage. I don't know. What do you think, Sam? What do you think about the family? (laughs) (laughs) I I do love all my family, but I I think it's like a historical formation. I'm very sympathetic to arguments about it it being a kind of historically formed product of capitalism and and especially with questions about... I don't think it's just capitalism. I don't think it's formed by... I mean, I know that that's often said. I think this predates capitalism. I think we're going back in prehistory and... I mean, I'm not a straight-up Marxist, but I, I appreciate Marx, but I don't think it answers as much as well as psychoanalysis does, frankly. And I'm in I'm in a big minority there, especially now that <laughs> Freud is really going out of fashion. Wow, I mean <laughs> there's, there's 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 definitely a few people on this podcast that would maybe that I've interviewed that would probably argue he's maybe coming back into fashion. But um uh, the, the final well, thing the final thing I want to ask you about um uh, is the the experience of care that you're talking about. I mean with with covid and the kind of mass uh i guess sort of mass disabling event that it yeah. that it represents and the, the sort of tremendous unaccounted loss and grief and um suffering that's happened it feels like it's not really been accounted for socially or, or culturally as comprehensively as maybe it, it should have been um and you've already well, said don't you that, think it's early don't you think sam it's early days well and we're maybe. not over it Maybe, but I also wonder if that means that there's maybe a kind of repression that might happen. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, as you said before, you, you think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very clear difference between writing and kind of cultural production and, and therapy or, or care more generally, perhaps. And the final question I want to end with is, is to ask you how you see the role of literature and, and making art um, as contributing to processing and, and kind of making sense of um, illness and, and loss and, and the kind of complexities of care more generally? Well, just on the side that it's not production, think about how people during these two or three years of COVID have needed to watch movies, to read books, to, um, to listen to music. If ever the arts seemed necessary, they have been, whatever they are. I mean, watching comedies or engaging in something that was talking about the varieties of life in all its forms. So I think just on the the level of the viewer, the reader, I think um, it's interesting. I wrote, I read, sorry, a number of occupation novels. Um, uh, and I read uh, a lot of Natalia Ginsburg, mm. uh, which were also occupation novels uh, during COVID. And for me, history is always present in, uh, in that, not just as references, 
but as ways that people survive. You know, that knowing that people survive even the occupation of Italy or of Greece and, you know, uh, Holland. I mean, reading these books allowed me to place the experience of COVID and 9-11, by the way, just not being able to take a train back because the trains had stopped running for that day, um, to um, not relativize, but to, well, what we're interested in in the analysis is to understand, to understand oneself better. I think, I mean, I, a writer like myself and others often question, what's the point of writing a book? What's the point in the era of Trump of writing a book that's subtle or sensitive or complicated or, you know, you do ask yourself that. And if you think, as I think, that the writer, the artist doesn't make meaning, but the reader, the viewer does, whatever your intention is, Sam, goes out the window if it doesn't matter to a reader. If, if a reader can't convert what is, in a sense, should be invisible, that intention, into something helpful or soulful or consoling or making you laugh, your intention just doesn't matter. So I think, you know, I don't idealize writing. I know that I need to do it. You know, I, I have needed to do it all my life and have struggled to do it. It hasn't been like it. I knew I could do it from the age of eight, but getting myself to do it and fighting those obstacles has taken a lot of work. So the fact that I need to do it doesn't mean that anybody needs to read what I write. That's sad, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, are, are there any kind of final things you want to go back over or any final points you'd like to make before we finish? It's not a memoir. <laughs> I want to say that very strongly. I think of it as an autobiographical essay. Um, I think it is very essayistic. Uh, and I did research for it, not as much as I've done for some of my novels, like Men in Apparition. So I think that's important. In a memoir, I would not have listed my mother's medications, for instance. This was about my my mother and me and my mother's situation, hospitals, doctors. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Lynn for such a great conversation. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider signing up for a £1 a month donation using the link in the show notes. This will go towards covering the cost of the podcast and when we reach 100 subscribers, I will arrange a giveaway for those people. Thanks again.